Good evening, good evening. It's great to be with you tonight. I've got one little thing that I don't want to be stressful, but I want to give you a test. (laughs) So you've got in your seat a stress test. Pull that out, and I want you just just to take a couple of minutes, and I want you to go down through there, and I want you to circle the things that apply to you. Let's just take just a minute, and let's just see if we are experiencing stress in our life. Just for a second. And let me tell you while you're doing that, that there are some things that are not on this sheet that contribute to the stress in my life. Um, Renovating an older home. (laughs) can be very stressful, especially when just 30 minutes before I left to come here tonight, when I'm trying to de-stress my life, I get an email from my contractor that I'm 14,000 over budget because of things that we didn't foresee going into this. So you know what I did? I took that and I set it to the side and I thought, okay, when I get home, After I've taught these women how to handle stress in their life, we'll look at that. That's not on there. Some other things that are not on there. One of the ladies we were just praying a few minutes ago told me that she'd had a wreck and totaled her car. That's not on here. That's stressful. Somebody in here broke their foot this week. That's not on here. That's pretty stressful. Um, We found a scorpion in our condo this week. That's pretty stressful. It could have been worse, though, because I thought it was just a leaf. We have a little Yorkie with silky hair, and he brings something in trash every time he goes out. So I saw it on the floor, and I went to pick it up, and I mean a millisecond before I picked it up, I saw it move. Well, you probably heard me scream. So it could have been worse. (laughs) We had a scorpion, but it didn't bite They might not kill you, but they'll... Oh, well, thank you for sharing that with me. (laughs) Things they didn't tell you when they called you to Alabama. (laughs) Uh, We're dealing with several staff people who are going through difficult times with their parents. That's stressful. That's not on here. That certainly contributes to it. Uh, Having everything in the world you own in storage, and you can't get to it for at least three more months, that's pretty stressful. It's amazing that I could match shoes with outfits because I'm seeing I've got the outfits but not the shoes, or I've got the shoes and not the outfits. So if you see me and I don't match the next few months, just say, poor Debbie. (laughs) She's dealing with it, dealing with it. Okay, are y'all through? Has everybody done it? Have you added them up real quickly? Okay, you can see at the bottom of this kind of to figure out if you're in a stressful situation, if you've got 150 points or less, it means that you've got a relatively low amount. Life changed pretty low, low susceptibility to stress-induced health breakdown. (laughs) That's good to know, isn't it? If you're 150 to 300, you have about a 50% chance, 50-50, of major health breakdown in the next two years. 300 points or more, and it raises the odds to 80%. You're going to have some problems. Can I just tell you, without adding these things... Mine was 365 when I took it last night. (laughs) So I probably need to go see Lou when we leave here. (laughs) I may need to just call and get on his schedule. How about it? Anybody call out? Numbers. What have we got? Anybody that's 300 or better? What's yours, sweetie? (laughs) 302. Okay, anybody better than 302? Come on, be honest. Okay, who's, who's 275 and over? 
Okay, what, what did you score? Well, you won my door prize tonight. It's called Make Your Bed. This is the best little book. Y'all may have seen this guy on Fox News several months ago. He talks about, he's an admiral, and he talks about how he learned early on that the best thing you can do is first thing when you put your feet on the floor is turn around and make your bed so that you're starting your day off that you've gotten one thing accomplished. I am a checker off. I mean, I have my list when I go to bed of things I want to do for the next day. And it just does something for me. It makes me feel so good that I can put my feet on the floor. I can turn around and make up my bed and check. Done. That's done. That's one of the reasons that I run, because that's one other thing I can check off. Boom. Got my 10,000 steps. I try to get them in before 10 o'clock. Done. So... We live in a world, ladies, I think everybody will agree, that is full of stress. Stress is just woven into the DNA of our beings. If you are young, if you're old, if you're married, if you're single, if you have children, especially teenagers, or if you just help with the neighbor's kids, we... Really, if you're breathing, if you're in here and you're breathing, then you experience stress from time to time in your life, some more than others. We live in a fast-paced, angry world, don't we? Can you believe the anger? You know I'm from Jacksonville, and y'all have read about what happened in Jacksonville just this past Sunday. A guy didn't win a game, and he got angry and went out to his car and got a gun and came back in and killed two people and injured several others. We live in an angry world where everybody thinks it's all about me. We live in an emotionally disconnected world. Oh my goodness. Do you, do you just see everywhere you go, people walking around, looking at their cell phones, looking at their iPods, looking at their iPads, doing something here that internalizes everything instead of looking out at a world. Our children, our grandchildren, everybody becomes so me-centered. We live in a stressful world. Well, maybe you've noticed the TV commercials, as I have, about what is called chronic or generalized anxiety syndrome. Y'all seen that? They're on TV all the time. Well, let me, let me just give you the symptoms because they don't tell you what the symptoms are. I went and Googled it. The symptoms are persistent worrying or anxiety about a number of areas that are out of proportion to the impact of the events. In other words, you're worried about things that really are inconsequential. Overthinking plans and solutions to all possible worst-case outcome. Okay, we're women. Let's just face it. We we always go to the dark side. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Third, difficulty in handling uncertainty. And let's just face it, life is full of uncertainty, isn't it? None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. Indecisiveness and fear of making a wrong decision. I don't think I've ever seen a time in my life when people are so indecisive, they're afraid of making a decision because they're afraid they're going to make the wrong decision. So therefore, they're just almost immobilized in indecision. And this is men and women, adults and children. An inability to set aside or let go of worry and an inability to relax, feeling keyed up and on edge. Okay, does anybody say, okay, I kind of suffer from that. (laughs) I, I suffer from that. Generalized anxiety disorder. It's really a fancy name for stress. How do you handle stress in your life? Well, the world has a lot of solutions for us. There's aromatherapy. My daughter 
brought me a wonderful candle tonight. So I'm going to go home after this, and I'm going to light that pumpkin spice candle, and I'm going to let it take me away to cool days uh, where I have all of my work done. There's massage therapy, and I'm all about that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's yoga. There's psychotherapy. But our world seems to be consumed with drug therapy. Do you have any idea how many Americans are on anti-anxiety drugs? Just from the 1990s to into 2000, from the end of the 20th century into the 21st century, it skyrocketed by four. Everybody's answer is medicated, medicated. 18% of our GDP in America is spent on anti-anxiety drugs. Over $1.2 trillion a year on anti-anxiety drugs. 270 million prescriptions are filled every year for anti-anxiety drugs. Now, I, I know some of you are thinking, okay, that's the world. That's the world. That's, that's not in the church. But let me tell you, I do enough counseling and I see enough people to know that it affects people in the church the same way, but we put on our church mask. And we don't want anybody to know that we're having a difficult time dealing with worry and anxiety. You know, we don't want to admit it. We, we have closet depression, and we don't want to admit that simple, everyday things in life stress us to the point that we sometimes become immobile. The world's prescription for stress is pretty clear, medicated. But what's God's prescription? I want to start our session off by saying there are people who are clinically depressed, and there are people who need to be on anti-anxiety medication. I'm not saying that you never should go on any kind of medication. When Mac and I counsel with women and they're going through very difficult times, the first thing that we tell them to do is to go and have a physical and make sure there's not some imbalance in their life. And I know that some people would probably disagree with that and think that that's not necessary, but there are times that medication is necessary. I'm not talking about those times. What I'm talking about tonight is the everyday stressors in life and how we, as women of the Lord, as Christians, can deal with them. I believe that Christians too often allow the world to shape and mold us and for us to fall into that mindset that the answer for us is medication. Ladies, life is going to be stressful. I'm not going to stand up here tonight and tell you, you can get to a place where you're not going to experience stress in your life. Life is stressful. But how do we as Christians handle the day in and day out little stressors of life and the big stressors where well, we're going to look at that? I don't know if you've ever experienced one of those days where everything you touched seemed to turn to mush. I think we've all been there at one time or another. Well, I want to tell you the story of Chippy the parakeet. Chippy's day started out just fine. Chippy was singing in his little cage. He was happy as a lark. Things were just doing great until Candy, his owner, decided she was going to clean out his cage. Now, we had a parakeet at one time, and that's another story for another day. My son prayed that the Lord would send him a pet, and he was out playing in the playground at our church, and a bird flew down, a parakeet, into the top of his head, and he grabbed it. And I'm telling you, and we had to explain that to his dad. He said God sent him the bird. Well, Elvis stayed with us for several years. Elvis 
was his name. But this day, Candy decides that she's going to clean out his cage because they do make such a mess. That's the one negative with birds. They throw their seeds around and they make such a mess. So she goes and gets the vacuum cleaner, which is a logical thing to do. And she starts vacuuming out the bottom of Chippy's cage. But just like happens for all of us, just as she's doing that, the phone rings. And she turns to answer the phone and thud, she hears. And she turns around and there's no chippy. And she realized she sucked him up in the vacuum cleaner. So she runs and she gets something and she rips open the vacuum cleaner bag and she pulls chippy out. And she knows he's alive because she sees his little eyes blinking. So, but he's full of soot. Have you ever opened up one of those bags? It's just dirt and soot and fine little stuff. So she races down the hall to the bathroom. She turns on the call water. She sticks chippy under there and he starts just shivering. So being the compassionate bird owner that she is, her hair dryer's right there. She picks it up and she zaps him with the hair dryer. Well, fast forward two days, and her neighbor, who's a journalist, hears about what's happened to poor Chippy, and he comes over. He says, I just want to do an expose in the little neighborhood paper. Tell me about Chippy. She says, well, Chippy's okay, but he just doesn't sing anymore. <laughs> Chippy just sits and stares. Have you ever had one of those days, ladies, when you've just lost your song? Well, you know what? Chippy went through a stress event. He probably, there he is. <laughs> yep, that was a stress event. A stress event is a one-time traumatic experience. Just a one-time. It's something that happens that you're not expecting, something out of the blue. We've all gone through those. And then there are also stress environments. Stress environments last much longer. Maybe some of you live in a stress environment. Maybe some of you work in a stress environment. We've just come through a couple of years where we were in a very stressful environment. Um, that, that's, that's normal for some, some folks. But sometimes you can have a stress event in the midst of a stress environment. And that happened to me when our children were young. And Courtney's going to remember this story immediately. I have three sisters. I'm one of four sisters. And I'm just going to tell you, we are just a little competitive now. We're not a little competitive. We are extreme. Okay, you don't have to be commenting from there. We're extremely competitive. And I, I really, I love my sisters. I adore them. And there's hardly a week that goes by that I'm not in communication with my sisters. We all live in different states. Um, but they're, they, they've just always kind of looked down on me a little bit because I'm a pastor's wife. They're, they have very high-powered jobs. My oldest sister was director of admissions at a university. She now is a very successful real estate mogul is what she is. The next sister is a nursing instructor, uh, was married to the college uh, quarterback. I mean, kind of had everything going forward. The baby sister is an engineer and was a vice president for one of the top 10 uh, engineering groups several years ago. So when I'm around them, they just are just all kind of saying, and then there's Debbie. Now, I graduated summa cum laude. My husband said magna cum laude, and I almost kicked him. I was summa cum laude graduating. <laughs> Ain't no magna cum laude here. I was summa. I graduated with all A's in three years. So I can, I can hold my own with them academically, but it's just kind of like, and then Debbie married the pastor. You know, that's what she did. She's a preacher's wife. So this one time when we're headed home, we're living in North Carolina and we're going home to South Carolina. We're all going to meet there. I know I'm going to a stress environment because when we get back together, we all fall into, and maybe y'all do too when you go back with your families, we all fall back into our patterns that we grew up with. My kids have picked up on this through the years that it's, you know, poor mama. So Courtney gets with me and she says, okay, 
Mama, we're going we're gonna to dress you up. We're going to fix your hair. We're going to get you a new outfit so that when you go in, they're going to go, wow, wow, there's Debbie. Something's changed. So I get this beautiful blue silk outfit. I get my hair all quaffed. I, my face is on just right. We're in the car. We drive to South Carolina. And about 30 minutes outside of South Carolina, Max says, you know, We've been through this slush. It had been snowing and messy. He said, I'm going to stop off. I'm going to rinse the car off, all that salt off before we go to your parents' house. That's fine. So the kids are all in the back seat. <laughs> She's laughing. The kids are all in the back seat. We have a little poodle who's kind of a little bit blind. He's older, and he's sitting in my lap, muffin. And Matt gets out at the car wash, and he's got one of these nozzle sprays, you know, that sprays so hard. And so he gets out, and he starts just doing the car off. And the dog can't figure out what's going on, but muffin just starts going crazy, and he's jumping, and he's jumping, and he hits the window down on the door <laughs> just as Matt... Okay, I'm all ready to see my sisters. All of a sudden, my hair is a mohawk in the back of my head. My eye makeup is down the side of my face. My lips are on my ears. And my dress is just, it, it, well, it's a sad thing. You know, there was absolute, was there not, Courtney? Silence. Even, even the dog who couldn't see anything knew there's something bad wrong here. Mac is just looking. I turned around, and all three of the kids, their eyes are big as saucers, and they're just looking. And it just hit me. Now, that was a stress event. Trust me. It just hit me. What are my sisters going to say when I walk in the back door now? And I started laughing, and all the kids started laughing. And to this day, every time we get together, we talk about, oh, do y'all remember the time? That... <laughs> A stress event going into a stress environment, but you know, we all, all survived it. Um, at the end of the day, if Chippy had been living my life, this is kind of what Chippy would have looked like. Well, the one beyond that, well, he's not moving, but Chippy's supposed to be moving his head around and around and around and around. That's, that's kind of what I looked like at the end of that day. The psalmist instructs us to sing to him a new song. But how do we maintain our spiritual song when things just happen? And let me tell you, things just happen to me. They just do. How do you, how do, you do that? Tonight, we're going to open up Psalm 23, and we're going to look at verse by verse. And tonight, we're going to look at word by word. We're going to take the next four weeks. Tonight, we're going to do a couple of verses, and we're going to look and break it apart and see what's God's prescription for worry. Tonight, we're going to look at worry and busyness. Commentators differ on exactly when David wrote this psalm, the 23rd psalm. Some think that it was when he was running for his son Absalom. Do you know David's son was trying to kill him, was trying to take his life? Now, that's pretty stressful. Some commentators think that that's when it was written. Others think that David probably wrote it in the twilight of his years, and I tend to agree with them. I can just imagine King David sitting out on the side of a Judean hill. Maybe the sun is setting, and I think he's just looking back over his life as he begins to write this psalm. He looks over the field of sheep, and he remembers the times that he himself was a shepherd. You know, David was one of uh, seven boys. He was the seventh son for his father, Jesse. So that meant the youngest son was the one that got to take care of the sheep. Like today, I guess the youngest son gets to cut the grass or work in the yard. Back then, it was take care of the sheep because none of the boys wanted to do that. That just seemed so 
uh, so mundane. They didn't want to do that, didn't want to have anything to do with it. So David was out tending the sheep. He thought about the times that he carried those sheep, the times that they hurt, and the times that he would pick them up and he would love them and he would carry them. And he started thinking, you know, God's just like a great shepherd. He thought about the times that he had to protect his sheep. He tells us about the times that he fought off the bear and the lion, and he thought, God's done that for me. I can look back over my life, and I can see times when it was only God's protection that saw me through. He thought about the time that Samuel anointed his head and made him king. He thought about that as he wrote this. He thought about the times that he was king when he would go into battle, and there was no way he should have won some of those battles. His men were so greatly outnumbered, but his great shepherd was on his side, and he did win those battles. He thought about, I'm sure, not just the high points in his life, but King David must have thought about the dark days when he talks about walking through the valleys. He must have thought about the dark days in his life. You remember what happened with Bathsheba? That had to be one of the lowest points in his life. You remember that because of the decisions, the very poor decisions that David made, Bathsheba's husband was killed in battle, and that was on David's shoulder. It was David's fault. David was the one who sent that man into battle. I'm sure he thought about that. But then I'm sure David also thought about the wonderful times when he was dancing and singing in front of the ark as it was being brought back to the temple. I'm sure all of this was going through his mind. David thought, the Lord is my shepherd. In the good days and in the dark days, God is there. In this psalm, David tells us that the Lord is all we need. And now let's look at your notes. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I want you to see first that knowing God, knowing God makes worry unnecessary. The Lord is my shepherd. The name that David uses is so important. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the name Jehovah. Jehovah is my shepherd. David could have chosen any name, but he says Jehovah is my shepherd. This name, this very name tells us so much. Now bear with me for a minute. Don't get lost in this. If we break that name down, Jah, it's the future tense of the verb to be. It means David is saying, he will be my shepherd. I can trust him with my future. He will be. That's Jehovah is being. It's the present tense of the verb. It means he is my shepherd today. David says, while I sit out on this hillside, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know right now he's my shepherd and I can trust him with my tomorrows. And then, ah, uh, this is the past tense of the verb to be. So in this very name, Jehovah, David is saying, I can trust my great shepherd, because he has been in the past, my protector, my savior, my shepherd. He is in my present, and I can trust him with all of my tomorrows. Just in that one word, ladies, we can hold on to that. One of my favorite names for God is Jehovah Shema, the God who is, the God who's in my tomorrows, because I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know I can trust him because he's there. The very name signifies that God is the one who is, 
the one who was and the eternal one, the one who is becoming and becoming and becoming and becoming. I want you to stop and think, those of you who've been here on Sunday mornings, what is John 1-1? It, it goes right along with this. Who, who can quote John 1-1? In the beginning was the Word, and that's exactly, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying here. That's what this very name begins. Jesus always was. He always was. That's exactly what's expressed in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let me tell you something. Learn that verse. That's good. That'll speak to your heart when you're going through a difficult time and you think, I don't know if I can make it through this. You just recall Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You know, the Jews knew the significance of this name. Jesus stood before them and he said, before Abraham was, I am. What he was saying is, before Abraham was, Jehovah. He said the God, the, the Jesus, our Father of the New Testament, is the same God of the Old Testament. Boy, that gives us all, all hope, doesn't it? David would tell us today that worry never solves a problem. Let me repeat. Worry never solves a problem. Last night, Mac and I were sitting on the sofa, and he was studying what he was doing, and I was putting the little final notes with this, and I just looked at him. I said, think back over your life. What was the thing that you worried the most about? What, what was the thing that you worried the most about? And he told me, and then I mentioned to him, I said, did that worry, did it, did it help at all? Did it change anything? He said, not one thing. I said, well, that's what I'm going to tell the ladies. Worry doesn't change anything in our life. It never solves a problem. Do you know what, what worry means? It's Old English, and it means to choke or to strangle. That's what worry means. It means to choke or to strangle. And let me tell you something. That's exactly what happens when you start worrying. And I have been there. I've been there in these last two years in certain situations in a way that I never have before. But let me tell you, all my worry, and there were times that I would worry so that I would shake, I would just tremble, I would worry so about things that we were going through. And you know what? It didn't change a thing. It didn't change one thing. I can look back now and I can tell you that everything that I've been through, the difficult times, God has been there. He's been there with me. He's walked with me through everything that I've gone through. Now, you might say, hey, Debbie, we don't worry about the big things. We don't worry about tomorrow. We let, let the Lord take care of that. But it's just the little things in life that I worry about. You know what we do? We, we give it, or if you're like me, I'll give my worries to the Lord. I'll say, okay, Lord, it's yours. I'm not going to worry about it. But then I catch myself pulling it back okay, I'm just going to worry a little bit longer. But God, but God, you know, maybe I need to do this. And then he'll pry my fingers loose and I'll give it to him and then I'll pull it back. Well, let me get you to look with me in Matthew 6, 25. What, what can we learn? Jesus says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious. That literally means, the, the tense of the Greek verb means stop worrying. Stop worrying. That's what Jesus is saying. For this reason, I say to you, Stop worrying. Okay, but let's go on in Matthew. Matthew 6, 34, Jesus says, Therefore, 
do not be anxious. He knows us. So what this is saying is, wait, 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 don't start worrying. No, no, don't start. Don't even start it. Don't go there. That's what he's saying. Don't start. And they're talking in this. He's talking about all the things that are necessary for life, food, clothing, all the things. And what does he tell us in the midst of all of those little things that we worry about? Stop. Don't even start worrying. As Lord, he's in charge. You know, that's what worrying is all about. I am one of those people, I'm a type A who likes to solve my problems and everybody else's problems too. That, that's just my makeup. And that's what worrying is. It's trying to control things that the Lord never intended for me to control. But that's the same in your life too, ladies. Are you, <laughs> stop, stop worrying. That's okay. <laughs> that's all right. It's happened to me before too. Look back to his provisions for your life in the past. When you start worrying, just, just stop where you are and look back to his provisions for you in the past and say, Lord, you were there. I might not could have seen it at the time, but I can look back and I can see it now. You were there, and I'm going to trust you with whatever I'm going through today. Okay, that's part one. Let's look at two. Knowing God makes worry uncharacteristic for our personal faith. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. During David's day, being a shepherd was a despised profession. I told you the youngest child is the one who would be out in the fields with the sheep. Sheep keeping was neither honorable nor noble. It was kind of, well, kind of like being a trash collector today. It wasn't really what you wanted to aspire to grow up and be. So why? Why would David say, if he knows that, he knows that it's not honorable, it's not what anybody wants to do, why would David say the Lord is my shepherd? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, because he knew what the shepherd did. The shepherd, number one, provided for his sheep. Sheep cannot provide for themselves. They can't, they can't get water for themselves, food, necessities. The, sheep, the, the shepherd does that for them. Sheep are helpless creatures. They're precious, but they're helpless creatures, and they can't do anything for, anything for themselves. Left unattended, they would die. They couldn't live without the shepherd. As our good shepherd, David recognized that the Lord provided for all of his needs, and he'll provide for all of ours. Number two, what else did the shepherd do? He protected. It was the shepherd that protected the sheep from all harm. You recall David? Just told you. He talked about how he fought off the lions and the bears. David says, I do that for my sheep. The good shepherd does that for me. And he would look at you today, and he says he does that same thing for you. He protects you from harm. I think that part of heaven is going to be looking to see how God protected us and protected our children all along the way because of our prayers. I think that we're going to see God was there and we didn't even see him. Number three, the shepherd guides. Sheep have no sense of direction. Okay, I'm just going to have to say I am the greatest sheep here. I don't do north, south, east, and west. I do left and right, but that's not exactly what David is talking about here. He's just saying that the shepherd has to guide them because they tend to just nibble off the path that they're supposed to be on, and they'll get into trouble, and the shepherd has to guide them and get them where they need to go, which leads to number four. He also corrects, and we don't really like to think about this, but there are times that our good shepherd has to correct us. The shepherd corrects the sheep when they flirt with danger. We're going to talk about the rod and the staff in one of our uh, lessons later on, and we're going to find out just exactly how the shepherd did that. David had known the loving correction of the Lord. After, 
uh, that happened with Bathsheba. Do y'all remember that Nathan, the Lord sent Nathan to see David, and Nathan tells him a little story. Here's the story of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had all of these sheep. The poor man had just one precious little lamb that he loved, and they brought it into the house, and they took care of it. And when the uh, traveler came in, the rich man got the poor man's sheep and slaughtered it, and they ate it. And David was appalled. Too easy. I'm going to go kill him. How could he do that? And Nathan points that gnarly finger at him, and he says, thou art the man. The Lord has to send people to correct us, and he himself has to correct us because we, like sheep, go astray from time to time. As our great shepherd, the Lord provides, protects, guides, and corrects. Look at Isaiah 40, 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, what a beautiful picture this is. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Love, care, concern, protection. Our great shepherd cares for us, his sheep. But there is an important provision. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He uses that pronoun because he wants to tell us that the Lord does this for those who know him as the great shepherd. That little word makes such a difference. The Lord is not a shepherd. He's not the shepherd. He has to be my shepherd. And I would ask you tonight, ladies, I don't want to take it for granted that everybody in here knows him as Lord and shepherd. But let me tell you, you can't experience this. You can't understand this until you've asked him into your heart personally. It has to be a personal decision to ask him into your heart to be your shepherd. The Lord can't be shepherd until the shepherd is Lord. With worrying, we're attempting to control the uncontrollable. I want you to stop and think about how a shepherd guides his sheep. Do you ever see the sheep out front? They're not leading the way. You don't see them side by side, but they follow their shepherd. We've been to Israel so many times, and it's always a beautiful picture to look out on the hillside and to see the sheep following the shepherd. It never gets old with me that I don't immediately go back to this verse, the Lord is my shepherd, because they follow the shepherd. Has there ever been a time when you felt like your life was totally out of control and you attempted to control what you weren't meant to control? Let me just tell you about a time in my life. My mother died of cancer, breast cancer. She died a horrible death with breast cancer in 1988. In 1990, just over a year, March of 1990, mom died in December of 88. In March of 1990, I had noticed a few changes in my breast tissue. Went to my uh, OBGYN who confirmed that there was something that wasn't right. Now, I want you to understand the history of breast cancer in my family, and I meant to bring you a picture to show you because it's really, it's unbelievable. My grandmother and all of her sisters died with breast cancer, the same aggressive type of breast cancer. My mother, and mother didn't have any sisters, but several of her first cousins, seven of nine females in those two generations, and that doesn't even count my generation where several of my cousins now have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Very aggressive type. I'd gone to MD Anderson with my mom for her treatments, and the doctors had looked at me and said, looking at your pedigree, you have to know it's not a question of if, but when with you. That was before BRCA testing and all of that. Um, so I, I, I had that in the back of my mind, and I was very vigilant, as my mom had been. I have to tell you, my mom was very vigilant, but 
Uh, my doctor that year said there are some definite changes in your breast tissue, just like my mom had had in hers. And he said, I really think we need to go and let you talk with an oncologist who then, that day I went straight to talk to him who sent me to a plastic surgeon. And by the end of that day, it had been determined that I was going to have a 30-year-old woman with three young children at home, bilateral mastectomies with immediate reconstruction. I don't know that I've ever in my life felt like my world was as out of control as it was during that time. My plastic surgeon was Dr. John McCraw, who wrote the textbook at that time on breast reconstruction. And he was going to have a symposium in 14 days where he had 400 doctors from around the world who were going to come in and watch him perform breast reconstruction the way they did mine is they removed my latissimus muscles around and shaped my breast. So he wanted me as a part of that symposium in 14 days. 14 days. I walked in there just for a regular checkup, and they say in 14 days you need to go and have this surgery. I, I can't even take They wanted me to, to donate my own blood because my doctor's mother had picked up hepatitis from a blood transfusion. So I had to go through that, doing the uh, donating my blood, taking care of that. We were fighting with the insurance company. You think Angelina Jolie was the first one to do this. I did that way back then, and insurance companies thought I had lost my mind to even think about it. So they didn't want to pay. So I'm fighting with insurance companies. I'm going through all of this. And then what's just going, I'm 30 years old. I'm having to go through this major surgery. I have three little ones at home. I don't think I've ever in my life felt as out of control. I went in on March the 22nd. Norfolk General Hospital for 11 and a half hours of surgery. And you've heard my husband talk about how he was there by himself. He waited with me and uh, the difficult time that he went through. Let me tell you, during that time, I was totally and completely dependent on the Lord. My life was totally out of control and I was dependent on him. I came to realize in a new way, the Lord was my shepherd. I didn't need a shepherd. I didn't need the shepherd. I tenaciously clung to the fact that the Lord was my shepherd and he was going to see me through those difficult days. I want you to see now that knowing God makes worrying about the future unprofitable. David goes on to say, I shall not want. He tells us he's connected to the source that is all sufficient and inexhaustible. He says, based on past experiences, I'm confident that the Lord's going to take care of my needs. You know what? The days following my surgery were filled with pain and immobility. I told you I was cut all the way around. They literally, they took my latissimus muscles and did those around. So I was cut literally all the way around my body. I could do nothing. Think of the simple things that you do with your hands and your arms that all of a sudden with three young children I couldn't do. I couldn't sit up in the bed by myself. I couldn't push up with my hands to get up. Of course, I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't brush my hair. I couldn't do anything that required this movement. And there were days that I thought, I'll never be able to do that. I, I've, I've done something. I've made a decision that I can't go back and undo, and I'll never be the same again. Well, you know, I remember very vividly the day that all my helpers, and I had a wonderful church. They brought meals for weeks. They took care of me. My mother, of course, was gone at this time, but my mother-in-law came. But the day came when my mother-in-law went back home. Mac went back to work. The children went back to school, and I was there by myself. And I needed a pain pill. 
I just started hurting so badly. I needed a pain pill. I got up and I went into the kitchen and I went to reach to get a glass to get some water to take my pain pill. And I couldn't reach up to get the glass. I could, as hard as I reached and then trying to lean, I could not reach up to get it. I'm going to tell y'all, the dam broke for me. I had been so strong for everybody up until this point. And let me tell you, I'd gone through a very difficult time. I was in the hospital for a week. I got home from the hospital. The night I got home, my fever shot up. I had a UTI, so I had to go back to the hospital for two days. And then everything that could go wrong went wrong with my surgery. Um, I, my blood count dropped down below five, and we had to call people in the church to come and to, to give blood. It was a very dangerous situation because, again, my doctor didn't want to use blood in the blood bank. Um, then I developed a vacuum in my breast. You have tubes after this, and you have to change the little G-tubes. And somehow it developed a vacuum in that breast tissue that honestly was one of the most painful things. I could almost cry now thinking about it, one of the most painful things I've ever gone through. Then I wasn't so big, and I didn't really have a whole lot of extra fat on my back. And I was a guinea pig for this surgery. They've learned a lot since then. But it wouldn't close up in my back, and fluid kept getting into those pockets. So they would have to go back in every day, and sometimes multiple times a day, and do a rather large needle in that to drain that fluid off. We'd do that multiple times. Oh, you can't even believe the scars I've got, but that's, that's another story for another day. So I'd been through all of that, and I'd been so brave for everybody. But this day, the dam just burst, and I can remember falling in the floor and saying, it's just not fair. Have you ever said those words? It's just not fair. I've given my life to you, Lord. I've given my life to you. Mac and I were growing church. We were there. We were visiting. We were doing everything we could do to get that little church to grow, and it was. It was growing like wildfire. Three young children. I said, Lord, I've given everything to you. It's just not fair for me to have to do this. I want to be here when my children marry. I want to be here to see their children. And at that point in time, I felt like I just probably won't. I'm not going to survive this. Lord, it's just not fair. And you know what? In the midst of my fears, in the midst of my worries, in the midst of my anxiety, the Lord just spoke to my heart. But I am here. And I do have things under control. I'm going to take care of you. I worried so about having the surgery, and my greatest fear was waking up and not knowing where I was and not having anybody there, and that did end up happening. I couldn't figure out where I was when I woke up, but the Lord was there. The Lord had seen me through those difficult days, and there were some very difficult days. And I've had to go back in and have more surgery since then. Uh, so there were a lot of difficult days, but the Lord just spoke to my heart, I am here. You don't need to worry about tomorrow, Debbie. You can't control tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in any of your family's life tomorrow. All you can do is trust me for today. Just trust me for today. Ladies, I don't know what you're going through tonight. I can only imagine that some of you are going through some times that seem insurmountable. Let me tell you, you can trust Him. You can trust Him with your todays, and you can trust Him with your tomorrows. The Lord's taken what was 
one of the most difficult times of my life, and he's turned it into something beautiful. And I'm going to share some of those experiences with you in the times to come. God never leaves us, and he never forsakes us. And that's exactly what David is telling us in this scripture. He's there during the great days, and he's there during the difficult ones. But let's turn. Let's turn from worry, and let's look at one of the other major stressors in our life, and that is busyness. If you're like me, you just sometimes get involved in so many things and you spread yourself so thin that the very best things in your life get set aside for the good things. I could tell you about a time in my life, but I won't go through that. When I was involved in so many things, I was meeting myself coming and going. Let me just tell you that busyness can cause a restlessness that can clutter our lives. David said, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. That is so funny. He makes me to lie down. Have you ever tried to get a baby to lie down. <laughs> you know, you put them in the bed and you pat their little backs and you pat a little softer till you're just kind of patting the air over their backs. And you start, you're still moving your hand patting as you start backing out. And what do they do? Those heads pop right up. <laughs> That's us. That's us. When God's trying to help us to rest in him, we're just like that little baby. We cram our schedule so full that we're like immature children who refuse to lie down. Well, David knew that it wasn't easy to get restless sheep to lie down. There are four things that have to be met. Number one, they have to be free from fear. One of the things that causes us to cram our lives so full is that we fear we won't be accepted unless we do it all. We spend our lives trying to prove something to ourselves and to other people that we're superwoman and we're not. We need to understand that nothing, nothing, nothing we do will make God love us anymore. Nothing we do. It should be just freedom. You should just feel just the weight come off of your shoulders. Nothing we do is going to make God love us anymore. His love is unconditional based on who he is, not what we do. Second, sheep are very social creatures, and they're not going to rest if there's any friction in the flock. And I think that I don't even have to explain that to you. If there's upset with your family, at work, with your husband, with your children, it's just really hard for us to rest in him. And if we're upset, if mama ain't happy, (laughs) ain't nobody happy. We're the thermostats in our home, so it's so important that we try to keep the house friction free. And then third, sheep are not going to rest as long as they're hounded by frustrations. They're not going to lie down if they've got little parasites that tend to get in their nose and in their ears. And that's why, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth later, the shepherd carries a little cruise of oil and he'll rub it in their noses and in their eyes and in their ears. It's just a picture of him soothing those little frustrations away for us. And then number four, sheep will not lie down and rest if they're still in need of food. Even if they've just grazed through a field, if they're thinking, well, I'm not going to have food for tomorrow, they're just going to get restless. Ladies, let me tell you, it's not physical food for us, but it's spiritual food. If we're in need of spiritual nourishment, we're not going to find our rest in the Savior. And you know, maybe you say, but I'm here. I'm here Wednesday night. I'm here trying to get fed. And maybe you say, well, I teach Sunday school or I'm at church on Sunday mornings, but you need personal quiet time with the Lord, a personal time when you pull away with him. Sheep lying down is a picture of contentment and satisfaction. First Timothy 6, 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We need to realize, excuse me, 
that our sufficiency is found in Christ alone. We have to say with Paul, whatever place I'm in, therein I'll be content. Why does David describe the pasture as green? Is he talking about the color? I think he's talking about so much more than that. It's a Hebrew word that David uses. It means to shoot or to spring forth. It's a noun that refers to tender grass or young herbs that are newly planted. You know, we have to be so connected with our shepherd that when he wants to lead us to a new field, which is what the shepherd does for his sheep, he would lead them to a new field. We have to be so in tune with him so that we know. Maybe the Lord's going to bring to a close a certain area that you've been working in, and he wants you to work in something else. We don't serve a shepherd who keeps us in the same field, doing the same thing, serving in the same way all of our life. Maybe he wants you to serve on a mission trip. Maybe he wants you to serve in the preschool department. Maybe he wants you to serve in the choir. You need to be so connected and praying with the Lord that when he's ready to move you to a new field of service, you're ready to do that. Let me tell you something. I thought we were going to retire in Jacksonville, and here I am. The Lord had a new field of service for us. Busyness can cause a waywardness that can misdirect our life. Just like ornery sheep, we have a tendency to wander away from what the shepherd knows is best for us. We'll nibble right off the path into danger. And when we get outside of God's will, our lives become monotonous with all the busyness. We get involved in so many things and it becomes monotonous and we're just like those wayward sheep. And let me tell you, I've counseled with enough people to tell you that there's a real danger when it becomes monotonous for us, when we're not getting that fresh word from the Lord, when we're dependent on ourselves, that's when Satan just creeps into your life and things get really dangerous. Uh, Sheep drinking from water. David says that he leads us beside still waters. It's literally translated waters of rest. It doesn't mean waters that don't flow because ladies, we're going to have stress. We're going to. It's not waters that don't flow, but it's waters of rest. You know, sheep won't drink from a fast-moving body of water. We've seen this in Israel. If there's not a still body of water, the sheep will take, the shepherd will take rocks and he'll mount them up so that there's a place where the sheep can come in between those rocks and he can drink. That's exactly what the shepherd wants to do for us. He wants to pull us away from all the busyness and the chaos of life and offer us rest that's found only in him. Let me conclude by saying, I don't know what's going on in your life tonight. Maybe you're having trouble with worry about some issue, or you've just gotten so busy and so involved in so many things that you're not listening to the most important thing, and that's the Savior's voice. There's a word for us here in Psalm 23. The shepherd is personal. He provides for our every need. He's going to provide a place of rest and contentment. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember Chippy? He had lost his song. But our God is in the restoration business. He can restore your song and the joy of your salvation. Remember, ladies, his provision, his protection, his guidance, in the past, in our present, and in the future, then we can shout with the psalmist, the Lord 
is my strength and my song. Would you pray with me?